0: This episode is brought to you by a bridge. A bridge is a free app that helps you capture the details of your healthcare appointments so you can review them anytime. As we're still in the early stages of life with coronavirus, I wanted to continue to bring you relevant content. Today's guest, Jody Tal, was immunocompromised, so like many of us, it's extra scary living through this time as we know we're at more risk. Just a quick reminder that we're recording remotely, which of course isn't my preference, but appreciate your patience with the sound quality. Now, welcome Jodi. Thanks, Harper. So Jodi and I connected several years ago through the Immune Deficiency Foundation. We co-chaired their annual walk, I think two years in a row, mm-hmm. and we doing some amazing work with the Immune Deficiency Foundation ever since. But let's dig into you a little bit. Tell us a little bit about who you are, where you're from, and what you do. As you said earlier, my name is Jody Taub.
1: I currently am from New York City. I uh, recently made the move off the island to Jersey City, but my office is still based in New York, and so basically there every day. I'm a psychotherapist with a private practice in New York City, and I specialize in patients who are living with chronic healthcare conditions.
0: Got it. So how did you get into doing the work that you do? which is quite relevant right now, obviously. Yeah, yes. About 14 years ago, I was
1: diagnosed with primary immunodeficiency. And prior to that, I was a child and family therapist. I worked in schools and I worked in foster care, And then started my own private practice once I got diagnosed because I needed the flexibility for my healthcare and also to limit my interactions in a school system with other kids in that type of environment. But as I was beginning my journey with primary immunodeficiency, I had gotten involved with the Immune Deficiency Foundation and they started having me develop some of their mental health work. So I began doing lectures and coping skills groups with teenagers, kids, adults, and caregivers throughout the country several times a year. And I've done some other work for them, including podcast and written content for their patient family handbook. In my own life and in my own journey, during the first couple of years outside of my volunteer work for them, I wanted some space for my illness. And I wanted to make sure that before I started working with patients as any anyone who has a chronic health care condition that I was emotionally ready and in a space that I wanted to work with other patients who were dealing with chronic health care conditions. And that took me a while. So it was probably a good five or six years into that before I started working with patients who had chronic health care conditions. And at that point, because I have so many different health care conditions, I've collected many. I think I'm up to like 22 at this point because of the PI many of my physicians that I worked with and colleagues were starting to send patients who had a variety of different healthcare conditions because they felt that I would have the background and knowledge and understanding and it's underserved. One of the things that people often don't realize, um, especially now in the social media age where therapists now specialize, in various areas we didn't have as many specialty areas prior to the last 10 years you either specialized in a population but not in specific ailments in the way that medical care does so there's no chronic illness major that you can sort of explore and people who are working in the chronic illness space were typically social workers who were working in hospitals and or in oncology, because oncology was on the forefront of hiring therapists to be able to talk to patients about chronic healthcare conditions. And as I progressed, I was very passionate because I get this and I understand how hard this is. So my patients have a variety of different healthcare conditions, including our disease PI as well.
0: So you don't have to have some sort of certification additionally to be able to work with people with chronic illnesses. Because that doesn't because it
1: doesn't exist. No. And
0: now more and more
1: what you're seeing with therapists is that you will see therapists are starting to pop up that you will see who are working with chronic patients with chronic health care conditions. And many of them, it's because similar to me, they had experience with chronic health care conditions and realized the need. There is certainly a need for this and need for this outside of particular groups, because there's many patients who have multiple healthcare conditions and or the journey to getting diagnosed, as we know, from rare disease can take a long time, and they don't know necessarily what they do
0: have. It's similar to coaching, because the training that I did, the Institute for Professional Excellence in Coaching and programs at Columbia and NYU are all general coaching practices. So people Mm -hmm. there becoming financial coaches or relationship coaches or business coaches like me, Mm -hmm. but there's not a certain degree that is connected to that specialty. So, you know, I think it will change over time as they realize the number of people in therapy and in coaching are finding specialties and people are looking for these specialties that there needs to be certifications that are specific. But right now it is the broader concept. Yeah. You've mentioned PI several times. Can you explain what PI is for those that don't know?
1: Yes. So primary immunodeficiency, and I may be wrong on this number because it continues to shift. So the last time I think I checked, it was 405 different rare diseases that fall under this category, but all of what is under a branch that they're hereditary and genetic conditions for the most part, where a part of your immune system does not adequately respond and or you're missing a part of your immune system.
0: And you were diagnosed with one and then many others? I'm diagnosed with one immunodeficiency,
1: which is common variable immunodeficiency. It's one of the more sort of common bases of PI. But part of having primary immunodeficiency means that your immune system doesn't function appropriately. So what happens is it affects almost every system in your body. So I have Several other autoimmune conditions and various other conditions, they're all a result of having PI. So I sort of lumped that in because I think that's important because the guiding premise is my immune system doesn't work, then my other systems can become disadvantaged.
0: And so last week, the way that we reconnected is that you posted a video on your Facebook page, sort of informing people where you were at and how important it was the social distancing and social isolating right now during coronavirus and that this is part of your life in general. Can you talk a little bit about what that means and how social distancing has been part of your life because of living with a PI? Sure,
1: part of the public awareness around this, ironically, corona is actually giving people some background and some knowledge around the immune system. So of recent talk, people are now understanding that in order to fight off an illness, you have to have antibodies that recognize that particular illness. For me and my PI, I don't have the antibodies that can fight off everyday sort of illnesses and in particular, some of the larger ones. So every two weeks, I call it OPP, other people's plasma, I receive other people's plasma where they're able to take the plasma out of blood. And in that plasma, I receive the antibodies to fight off measles and mumps and pneumonia and rubella and all of those things that I wouldn't be able to do even with the vaccines alone. That's part of the PI diagnosis is that you do a pneumovax challenge, you get a pneumonia shot and you see how many of your antibodies respond or don't respond. And so what's happening right now is we now have this. Pathogen and virus that's in the environment, and I don't have antibodies, but I count on other people. It's called herd immunity, having antibodies to this to be able to fight this off, and therefore be able to put that into my plasma, so that if I do get this, that it's not deadly. So right now, because we have this new pathogen, I'm at and you, unfortunately, <laughs> we're in a group that neither of us wanted to join. This group, wow, we definitely did not want to be part of this one. This is not a club we wanted to join but you know unfortunately we are at a greater risk of having complications and severe complications from you know what's going on and I'm laughing now because my boyfriend calls it Jody's rules so a lot of things that we're doing right now I do all the time so any time that I go to my doctor's offices that are in the larger hospital systems I wear a mask I come home, strip down, take my clothes, put them in the washing machine. I take the wipes and I wipe everything down with alcohol Uh so it's cleaned. During the cold and flu season, I avoid people who are ill. All of my patients know they cannot come in if they're coughing or sneezing or they have something going on. I limit probably my subway use. Um, If I'm on an airplane, I will figure out who's coughing. Sometimes I'll ask to change seats. I wear um, a mask on airplane rides. So my lens of looking at the world, because I enter a room and look for people who are sick so that I can remain safe, now
0: other people are sort of using this lens too. It's interesting because it's a complicated thing for a lot of people. And a lot of people are having a hard time grasping how this is actually making a difference. How is it making a difference that I stay six feet apart or I stay home? You know, I'm not going to get this. And it's sort of been a selfish thing as many of us have acknowledged. So how do you educate people who don't really understand the importance of this, obviously right now, and in general for people like us who are more susceptible to getting things?
1: You know, I think as we progress each week, we gain more knowledge. So when I did that video a couple weeks ago, I had been isolated in my home for eight days trying to explain to people why t- I gave the example why touching carrots in the grocery store might be dangerous. At that point, we were talking about groceries. Now we are. Now there's videos of doctors showing you how you wipe down groceries and, and certain stores are taking advantage. So I think the simplest way I try to explain it is that our bodies cannot recognize any type of disease or pathogen and if that pathogen comes our way we're going to get really sick so the importance of doing this is because even if you are healthy you can bring that on to somebody else and there isn't you know we're all connected in this there's not one human being right now who doesn't know a grandparent a friend a significant other a cousin someone that is touched by this because when they keep saying 80 percent Well, that 20% is really important, and that's all of us. And the other thing that now is happening, and I think that's happening with more information that we continue to receive, is that initially, the information that we were receiving is, oh, it's just the elderly and people who have compromising immune systems, and some of the other various diseases they listed, which was uh, heart disease, diabetes, lung disease, cancer. I might be missing a few, but people who are compromised and the elderly. And now what we're seeing is the last post, they were saying that 50% of the patients in New York City are under the age of 40. So that's not the case. So I think that this week, when I'm explaining it to other people, I think that there's more information now, but to understand that we are all in this together and that in order to stop the spread and to start you know, protecting the people around us, you have to think about everything that you're doing.
0: So with that said, you left New York and went to Cleveland and Mm -hmm. staying with a friend. Was that something that your doctors advised you to do? Were you cautious about flying? What was your thought process behind doing that? Well, I
1: recognized earlier, and I'm sure you did too, what a risk this was for us. I started thinking about this in February and started kind of seeing things come down the pike. I was very, very lucky in that my infectious disease physician and one of my best friends who happens to be a surgeon at Yale Cornell were becoming progressively concerned about what was happening.
0: Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Abridge. Abridge is a free app that helps you capture the details of your healthcare appointments so you can review them anytime. With a bridge you can record conversations with your doctor and share the recordings with family, caregivers, friends, or anyone who you want looped in on your health. A bridge's technology highlights and indexes the key medical points in your conversations, which is what makes it different from the recording app on your phone. As someone who works with a team of doctors and has lots of appointments, I love this concept of the app. There have been so many times when I've walked out of an appointment only to realize that even though I was paying attention, I can't totally remember everything my doctor said. I love that Abridge solves this problem and helps people be their own advocates and make the most of their doctor visits. To download Abridge for free, go to abridgeapp.com slash made visible. That's Abridge spelled A-B-R-I-D-G-E app.com slash made visible. abridgeapp.com slash made visible. And now back to the show.
1: I started this process of what is now happening with everybody else, the end of February. By the first week of March, I had started socially isolating. I was off the subways. I was teleconferencing with my patients and not seeing patients in the office anymore. So as this was sort of playing out, I sort of did the prep. But my bigger concern, and I'm very, very grateful for this, is that one of my closest friends in New York is an ophthalmologist. She's a surgeon of Weill Cornell. And she came to me and we started discussing her concerns and then also what her colleagues were starting to see in the hospitals. And the minute that, you know, she called me, I think it's now about three and a half weeks ago and said to me, listen, 10 to 30 people are coming into the ER by the hour. We don't have the capacity. And this is going to be a major problem for you. And in, in order to like save your life and sustain your health and stability, she's like, we need to start planning. And I'm lucky enough that I have close friends and family here. And I have friends who have... A huge home that I was able to come to. And even my boyfriend and I had to do social distancing because he had been on a trip. I had been isolating for nine days prior in my apartment. But even just for me to go walk my dog, attend my appointments at my doctor's office, or even have my nurse come in because I have weekly nursing care, I'm on IV antibiotics every day, those people were a risk to me. And so if I continue to be in an environment where I was at risk of getting COVID. that's life-threatening for me and it's life-threatening for me if i don't go to the doctor's office to get my immunoglobulin therapy if i'm not able to attend my other appointments so we started sort of doing the backup and ohio started putting in some pretty severe laws um the laws that are now in place in new york before they had the spread that new york is and just by density alone listen there are Fabulous positions, and there are people on the front lines right now—friends and and colleagues and people that I know who are fighting this. Um, you know, unfortunately, New York City is dense; it's the largest populated city, and on a good day, our healthcare system is overwhelmed. They are not able to attend to all of the patients on a regular basis. So, the opportunity to come to Cleveland and have a safe space mm-hmm. where they mm-hmm. actually had land and bedrooms and a place for me to go where I can't come in contact with other people and have access to the Cleveland system, I used to access Cleveland Clinic both for myself and for my family members, that I could come here and be safe. It's worth my life.
0: Yeah, that's huge. And, and this is where you have to put yourself first because you recognize yes. how much more susceptible you are than other people. What are you doing to take care of yourself? Anything different than you regularly do with your health? Yes.
1: (laughs) I mean, obviously, a lot more social distancing and a lot more of my spraying down, but I accepted the fact that this was coming. So what I've been doing is really trying to be conscious every day of keeping a balanced day. So I've been making sure that I get some sort of physical exercise every day. I can do that here. So when I was in my apartment in Jersey city, I would download some exercise routines that I could do because I really wasn't able to go outside very much here. I'm able to take a walk. There's no one, no people outside at all, tons of acres of land. So I'm walking. I'm really making sure that I try to get good sleep and eat healthy and maintaining contact with my friends and really need to keep a balanced day and structure. It's the same thing I'm recommending to my patients because right now we're all out of sorts. And so making sure that I really stick to those schedules in my busy New York life, I may push things and work too hard and skip days of exercise and maybe I'm eating on the go, but I'm not doing those things. I'm being very mindful to be cautious of my health.
0: And I think that's relevant for everyone, you know, whether they have an invisible illness or not, to really create some consistency in their lives and implement these, you know, healthy tactics that can keep everybody healthy. That's right.
1: I think it's really important right now. And also my mental health. You know, just as everyone else is going through this, our current experience is trauma. Everybody right now is experiencing trauma. And, you know, trauma as, defined by the American Psychological Association, it's emotional shock following a stressful event, physiological injury, or a natural disaster, a rape, a one-time event. And so what's happening with everybody right now, and I recognize that, is everybody's in fight or flight. Everybody's sympathetic nervous system is trying to recalibrate to our everyday. And with each day, and depending on where you live, there's more and more restrictions. There's things you could do and not do. And I'm trying to practice what I preach and making sure that I still stay connected with my friends and still stay connected with my family. Because I also recognize this is going to be a long time to come for me. And I know that while other people, once herd immunity starts, they might feel more comfortable going out into public, this is going to be my life for a while until I can figure this out. And so I have to find some semblance of a new normal.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting because as a business coach, Sometimes it feels challenging right now, guiding my clients during this time, because I don't have the answers just like they don't on what's Mm -hmm. going to happen to our businesses and our lives, when things will be better, when things will be quote unquote normal or what the new normal will look like. And it's a little weird to be like, here's what I think could be valuable for you to do. But more than ever, I don't really know if it's valuable and going to be helpful to Mm them is this similar with your practice and if so how do you navigate it with your patients
1: well and what you were just talking about is explaining to them the acceptance of that right so i think that's where you start is that we all have to accept that we don't know there's a lot we're not going to know So because of that if we can recognize that it is going to be sort of up and down the first step in all of that is accepting that process, that our everyday lives are going to change. And so, okay, I need to accept this. And there's a loss in that. There's a loss for all of us because structure provides us with stability. That's why we adhere to that. And also we're social beings. So humans are expected to be a part of a community and to be dependent upon others. So what I do start off with my patients is to accept that part. I think the second part is we've also been talking about is accepting that this is trauma and that this is difficult and that everybody around us is experiencing this in different ways. So when you're being attuned to your own emotions is to say like, okay, like You know, maybe I am having a hard time today and maybe someone else is having a hard time too and I'm gonna be attuned to all of that. But no, you know, as you said, Harper, we don't have the answers to all that. We don't know how long this is gonna take. We don't know what this is gonna look like because nobody does. But what I also hone in on in the third component of that is that we're going through this together. And that I think people can really adhere to is that it's one thing if you're just going through this by yourself, or with a small group of people but when everybody's going through this together there's a sense of community and that community right now of having community support with everyone going through this trauma together i think that's what makes people get through this
0: i think that's a really good point because i think for the last few weeks a lot of people have mentioned 911 and mm-hmm. how you know how does this differ and i think it differs in a major way but the big one is that 9-11 majorly impacted New Yorkers the most, especially those who live downtown. Were you in your downtown yeah. apartment during that?
1: I was in Chicago.
0: Actually, I was in, um, it's part of why I've become good at
1: survival. I was one of the um, passengers during Come From Away. So I had flown over and I was actually in Newfoundland at that time. No so, way. Yeah.
0: Oh my God. Is that funny? It was a show, by the way. Yes,
1: my best friends who are here were laughing. They're like, "This is Jody's second evacuation." I'm like, "The first time I learned, to take your underwear, <laughs> make sure you have a change of clothes and some underwear on you and a
0: snack, and this time bring some hand
1: sanitizer." So yeah. Oh, that's
0: hysterical and so odd. Um, but my point in bringing up 9/11 was really that you know New York was obviously hit the hardest. It impacted yeah. the world. Everything changed to some capacity, but it was short-lived yeah. and everyone went back to their lives and things didn't shut down and we weren't socially isolating. And that is the huge thing is that we are now all in this together from a distance. And that's super different here. Shifting gears a little bit, in some sense, do you find that your client's previous experiences with navigating a chronic illness has prepared them in some sense for this? absolutely and in fact
1: a lot of my patients have talked about feeling validated as you know you know many of the patients who live with invisible illnesses we often get overlooked there's a lot of lack of understanding. There's a minimization because we quote unquote look well because people don't understand the manifestation of what our different diseases look like. And a lot of my patients, for lack of better terms, have felt like they're coming out of the closet. They feel more safe to be able to talk about their illnesses. They don't feel like they're, you know, because they're in survival mode, I'm going to lose my job if I talk about my illness and it's going to represent my perceived inability to do my job or to not be available. So. A lot of my patients have found that their experience in navigating the medical system, their experience with unpredictability, that's one of the things that we really have to deal with when you have a chronic healthcare condition is you don't get to choose when you feel good and when you don't feel good. And often it happens at the most inopportune times. And so many of my patients felt like learning how to modify their behaviors and become flexible and to navigate change has been helpful.
0: Yeah, I'm sure. And what about for you? I mean, you acknowledge that you didn't start your practice focusing on people living with chronic illness, because you had to deal with your own stuff, and be able to get to a point where you felt like you could support other people. So how does that help here? And do you feel safe in your current situation, being in Cleveland and social isolating? As a therapist, you know, we're sort of like primary care doctors. We're trained to be
1: generalists. You know, we all deal with a variety of different issues. So I think my background as a therapist in helping me deal with survival and dealing with emotional shifts and change is always helpful for no matter what I have been dealing with and working through the process, like of also recognizing that I'm feeling fight or flight too. You know, I'm in survival mode and I need to make these decisions around my health care. I've been able to navigate that in terms of my own emotional world and recognizing where I am and what I needed to do. I recognize that I felt very unsafe in New York and in my apartment. And I recognize that that level of feeling that unstable and feeling at risk was not healthy for me, which is why I made that decision to come to Cleveland in advance. And I was very lucky that, you know, I did that. And that also was assessing my resources, that I can't do this all by myself. And I need some help and I need a space to be able to be in a safe environment. And so that was part of my decision making in coming here too.
0: Are you finding that your patients are leaving their homes in New York City as well?
1: Yeah. You know, what's interesting, Herbert, is that up until Trump's announcement this past weekend that he wanted to restrict travel for New Yorkers who were leaving the area, Prior to this, if this was several weeks ago, I think there was a lot of support for people understanding that there were individuals who needed to get out of New York for various reasons and not just health reasons. You know, there's what people don't understand until you live in New York City is that we're communally based. Our apartments are tiny and small. They're not meant for long term use. And there's a lot of people who are single people who live on their own. And being isolated in an apartment by yourself can be really challenging. And particularly if you have health care conditions that make you dependent upon medical care, which you may not be able to receive anymore because many of the physician's office have closed. So, and that's a safety, that's a safety issue. And I think that in recognizing that, I think there's a personal responsibility for saying, hey, I know that if I'm leaving here, then I need to keep myself safe. So I had many of my patients who made the choice to leave, but they may have made the choice to go somewhere to isolate before staying with their parents to make sure that they were completely healthy. And I have a lot of friends and family who made that choice that if they stayed by themselves, it may have been a risk to either their physical or emotional health. You know, not everybody has that opportunity. And I recognize the privilege that I have in order to have somewhere to go because I may not have had that
0: choice or option. Right. You mentioned that the number one thing that you're acknowledging with your patients is that this is trauma and just being aware of that. What is the second thing that you're addressing with them that could be relevant to other people, my listeners who are living with autoimmune diseases and other invisible illnesses? that are going through this emotionally in their own ways. So the second part was
1: honing in on their coping skills. So how was that trauma impacting you? So I had some patients who were feeling immobilized, where they were just you know, sleeping and not feeling motivated. So for those patients, I was really encouraging for them to stay connected, to create a schedule, to bring some of those components of their everyday. I had some patients who were feeling really anxious and emotive and were crying and feeling depressed and fearful. And so for those individual patients and in the greater audience to make sure that they got the help that they needed, that they took a step in and talking with me, talking with their friends, to get some support around all of this, because this is hard.
0: Yeah, it is hard for everyone. And it's especially hard for those of us who are immunocompromised. Mm -hmm. And it's just a little bit scarier. I mean, it's interesting because someone asked me if I felt safe knowing that today I'm day 19 in social isolation. I have not interacted with anyone except for my parents. And we haven't gone to a grocery store or been out doing anything or receiving packages. And people have dropped off groceries. And so, although my parents are using gloves to open up boxes and we're keeping them out for 48 hours and all these nitty gritty details, there's still that risk that I touched a fruit that we didn't wash that one little spot and maybe I get it from that. And there's just that overall fear. So, it's not like anyone is safe anywhere unless you completely remove yourself from absolutely everything. Correct. And Harper, in that, because I share that too. It's like, you know,
1: that feeling of, oh my gosh, if that package. And I think part of that is also being kind to ourselves too, because we can only do so much. There's a risk no matter what we do, right? There's always a risk, but it's like, you know, if you don't get your groceries and you can't eat. So I think it's the acceptance of like trying to tell yourself and remind yourself that you're doing everything in your power to keep us safe as possible. And that is the only thing that you can do. Absolutely agree. Thanks yeah, reminder. And I think we do need those reminders because, listen, like I chose to come to a home, you know, and my friends are socially isolating and my boyfriend also is as well. And I don't want anybody to go to the grocery store. And, you know, my natural instinct is don't do anything. But I also recognize that They have to be as safe as possible and they'll do the best job that they can, but at some degree, and I think that's part of it, Harper, is that we're all feeling this fear and it's sort of recognizing like talking yourself down and reminding yourself that you're doing the best job that you can and that at some point we have to accept that, yes, there's a risk to everything. And I think the other thing, and hopefully this is helpful for some of the listeners, kind of brand yourself. One of the things that I've been telling my patients to do, and I've been doing it every morning myself, is to think of five things to be grateful for each morning. What are the things that I'm grateful for today? Are these the things that we were grateful for a month ago, two months ago? Probably not. But right now, that's our new normal. And so, I have found that to be helpful to ground me on the things that I do have right now. And it's also a reminder of the things that we are doing. And I think that it's those things when things are really difficult and we're in a crisis situation that you have to remind yourself of that.
0: I agree. I think that's a really good point to end on. I appreciate you taking the time to chat with me. I hope that you stay well, take care of yourself and your patients, of course. And how can people learn more about you and your business? Sure. Thank you, Harper. And thank you for having me today. I hope you stay safe too. We're
1: in this together. Um, my website is my name, J-O-D-I-T-A-U-B therapy.com.
0: Awesome. Thank you. Thanks for having me today, Harper. Thanks for tuning in to Made Visible. We hope you learned about something new today. If you enjoyed this episode, Please take a few minutes to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on iTunes. We can't do any of this without your support. Visit madevisiblepodcast.com and follow Made Visible Podcast on Instagram. Special thanks to the team who made this possible. Elise Bonebright, the audio editor, Gemma Leghorn, the assistant producer, Dylan Chenfeld for the intro music, and Amanda Gracio for the design.